0: Ecclesiastes is really asking us the question, what's really important in life? What really satisfies you? What really fulfills you? What are you chasing after? What 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 really gives meaning? What are the big what are the answers to the big questions in life? What is this life about? What's true? What's false? What should I be doing with my time, my life, my money? If you're there's a lot of young people here, if you're in high school or college, just out of college, I mean these are huge questions. These are the questions you should be asking yourself. What is really going to matter in this world? What's really going to satisfy me? What's really going to fulfill me? And what we find out is that this this word written 3,000 years ago is actually just as timely today as it was then. The same things we chased then, we chase now. G.K. Chesterton once said, Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And you say, no, that's not true. He's looking for... Fun, he's looking for excitement, he's looking for pleasure, he's looking for relationship. He's looking for something else. He's looking for meaning to his life. Every search, every chase is about God. And the question is, is will the chase, will the search result in a find? What will we find? We looked first week at pleasure, second week at achievement, this week looking at money. Hear God's word from Ecclesiastes 5, 10 and following. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God gives him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, you have declared yourself and made yourself to be our rock, our shield, and our hiding place. Lord, would you strengthen, preserve, and protect us? Would you open our eyes that we could see? Would you unstop our ears that we could really hear what it is you have to say? Father, would you show us what it is that will really fulfill us, what it is that will really satisfy us? Lord, make our chase, our search in life not empty, not wasted but may it result in finding you. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Few messages are more timely, relevant, practical, and simply true than the Bible's teaching on money. Wherever you look today, wherever you go, obviously because of the economic situation, people are talking about money. People are talking about finances. But the Bible has always been talking about it. In fact, the Bible is way out ahead of Fox News and CNBC and the Wall Street Journal. The Bible is way out ahead. The Bible has been talking about this for years and years and years. In fact, you know, Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Jesus uh, talked about, the, whole, the Bible talks about money more than ten times as much as it talks about alcohol or sex or any of those other things that we tend to really focus in on. And if I could boil down the message, really the whole message of the Bible on money, I think, is, is, is this, and, and the message of the passage, is that, that money makes a terrific servant, but a terrible savior. Money makes a terrific servant, but it makes a terrible, terrible master. What does that mean? Well, obviously, it means that money has a beautiful side, and it has an ugly side. It has a bright side, and it has a very dark side. And and if we look across what's common in every culture, basically, is that money holds a unique place in society, a unique place in culture. It holds so much power. And what happens is what begins to take place in our hearts is a kind of money sickness, a kind of money centricity. We might call it uh, greed or something like that. We begin to chase after it because we see that's what equals the good life. That's what will really satisfy. We begin to think about money and see it and need it. For our happiness and want it for control and want it for security and comfort, we begin to think that money equals ownership and control. Right? Money gives me ownership and control, and then in the end, we find that actually we're the ones being controlled. We're the ones being owned. That's actually that's actually really the essence of sin, isn't it? I mean, sin is we we kind of think sin is breaking some arbitrary command somewhere. That's not really true. It is true, but it's not the full picture. Sin is being mastered by. Something other than God. So you think it's going to give you ownership, control, but it actually you find that you are being controlled and owned. You find that money is not your servant; it's your master. Sin is being mastered by something other than God. Well, this is such a it's such a deceptive thing in our hearts, such a deceptive thing in my life. And this week has been kind of difficult for me because I've been dealing with all my own demons uh, around money and having to uh, having to see some of this. and And so I think we have to ask some really tough questions of ourselves. We have to get real. Uh, with ourselves, get real um, with God. So what are some signs here that money is our master rather than our servant? There's four signs. I think they're pretty evident from uh, the text, and you'll, we'll kind of go through them. But um, the the very first one is, is kind of about happiness. And, and years ago, it wasn't long, four years ago, I think, Lexus came up with this very um, unique advertising campaign. And uh, they said this, whoever said money cannot buy happiness wasn't spending it right whoever said money whoever said uh, that money can't buy happiness isn't spending it right and, and it's very it's very perceptive isn't it i mean because we've heard that before money can't buy happiness yes i know i know you can't buy happiness with money da, 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 all the best things in life are free but let me prove you let me be the one to prove you wrong i will go out and do it i can be the one let me try it and see and then i'll tell you if it's true or not that's basically what we're saying but solomon did try it he did see he was the wealthiest man in all of israel and this is what he's telling us. He's saying that money, it, one sign that money is a master rather than a servant is that we look to it for our happiness. What does it say in chapter 5, verse 10? It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now, notice it doesn't say he who has money. See, that's what we try to, he who has money, the, you know, the rich person is kind of the villain here. That's not what it says at all. It says he, not he who has money, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. See, it's possible, very possible to be rich without the money sickness and very possible to have have the money sickness without being rich. It's very possible to be on either side of that equation. But what he's saying is that, and by the way, just correct an old, people often misquote the Bible say money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Um, so listen, for, for those who love money... What he's saying is that there can never be enough. There can never be enough. If you love money, there can never be enough. It's like drinking salt water. Try playing a game of basketball someday, sweating, and, and then going and drinking a bunch of salt water to quench your thirst. It don't work. It doesn't work. It'll only make you thirstier because the more salt water you drink, the thirstier you'll get. And that's what he's saying here. If you love money, you can never enjoy it. You can only enjoy money if you don't love it. If you love money, it'll never satisfy you. Nelson Rockefeller, who was at one time the wealthiest man in the world, multi-billionaire he was asked, how much money is enough? And you know what, you hear what he's saying there. How much to satisfy you? How much to make you happy? He's the wealthiest man in the world. Certainly he's happy. What did he say? How much is enough? He said, one more dollar. One more dollar would be enough. In other words, there's never enough. And if you find in your life that there's never enough, that the promotion, the raise, whatever, doesn't increase, then happiness, the ma- money you're being mastered by money. I think it's so easy for us to think that, you know, the promotion, the the pay raise, we win the lottery, whatever is going to finally give us the happiness that we that we want. But it's simply it's simply not true. All the studies bear this out. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't even have to take Solomon's word for it. Um, one study looked at looked at happiness and money. Started in 1957, when the average income was $10,000. That's today's dollars. How many? What percentage of people in the U.S. would you think said they were very happy? Uh, 35% was the answer. 35% said, I'm very happy, and they made an average of $10,000. 1984, that increased 80% to $18,000. 34% of people said they were very happy. Today, 2004, is standard of living better than ever has. Uh, 2004, the standard of living was better. Obviously, it's dropped off maybe some since then. But uh, in 2004, when it was 27,000, increased another 50%, 34% of people said they were very happy. I mean, the same number of people say they're happy basically regardless of what they're Income is. They did another study. Asked people who made thirty thousand dollars a year, what would it take to make you happy? If I just made fifty a year, I'd be happy. They asked people that made fifty a year, what would it take to make you happy? A hundred a year, then I could really be happy. They asked people that made a hundred a year, what would it take to make you happy? Two fifty. You see the you see the progression how it goes. Um, as I was thinking about this, I, I stumbled upon this article from Money Magazine, and. Uh, a lot of you probably read Money Magazine. If you don't know Money Magazine, it's not any kind of Christian publication at all. It's a financial magazine, and there was an article in there on money and happiness, and it's, it's got it's got in it all like the latest social psychological research and financial experts and stuff like that. And, and I started reading it, and it follows Ecclesiastes five like to the letter. Never mentions it, never talks about God, anything like that. But but the outline goes with it. I just want to read you a couple things, and I'll read more from it later. But uh, it, it talks about money and happiness. It starts the article by saying this. How can you transform the money you work so hard to earn into something approaching the good life? You know there must be some connection between money and happiness, right? And it says this: but why is it that the more money you have, the more you want? Why doesn't, borrow, why doesn't buying the car, the condo, the cell phone of your dreams bring you more than momentary joy? Much of the research suggests that seeking the good life at a store is an expensive exercise in futility. Futility is one of the exact words in the text. Vanity, vapor, smoke, futility, that's one of the exact words in the text. He says, the new science of of happiness, there's a science of happiness now, it starts with a simple insight. We are never satisfied. We always think if we just had a little bit more money, we'd be happier, says Catherine Sanderson, a psychology prof at Amherst College. But when we get there, we're not Indeed, the more you make, the more you want. The more you have, the less effective it is at bringing you joy. The seeming paradox, this seeming paradox has long bedeviled economists. I could have saved them millions of dollars of research and a lot of time and salary for this professor and all this stuff if they simply read Ecclesiastes 5. It just said, who who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Money makes a great servant but a terrible master. Derek Kidner says, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings... It is the emptiness that it leaves. All right, so that's the first sign that we look to it for happiness. Second sign is that we see it as freedom. We start to see money as freedom. We see money as control. If I have money, then I can control things. I have options. I can can control the educational opportunities, the vacations, the whatever. Money is supposed to give us the freedom to do what we want, right? What does verse 11 say? It says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, what, what does that mean? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, the more you make, the more you consume, right? I mean, the more you make, it feels like, wow, I got a raise this year, but I don't know where it went. The, the, the more you make, it simply uh, says the, the more you will consume. If you if you make more, there's going to be more people to consume it. People will be around with their hands out, right? People will be around, you know, mooching off of you uh, the more you make and the wealthier the wealthier you are um, if you 're wealthy, we all think we kind of, we all think we want to be wealthy i 'm um, not so sure if we would because if you 're wealthy, sometimes you don 't really know who your friends are you don 't really know who 's just mooching you don 't really know who 's just there. you know all these celebrity stories will tell you that will tell you that 's true, right I mean these celebrities have more friends than you can count whenever they 're paying for the the parties and the the alcohol and the whatever. When their fame is gone, they're bankrupt. They're on the side of the road. There's no. Where are their friends? Where are these thousands of people that were around them all this time? They're all gone. If you're if you're wealthy, you get charged more for things. If you're wealthy, you um, you're going to pay higher taxes, right? If you make more money, you're going to pay more taxes. You got a nicer house, you're going to pay more real estate taxes. A nicer car, you're going to pay higher property taxes. You're going to pay higher insurance costs. There's a lot of anxiety that goes with being wealthy. You have more to manage, you have more to lose. You have more skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, last summer I got to go to the beach and uh, I went to the beach, had a great time there, met another family there, one of my one of my best friends in the world and he is uh, he's very wealthy and um, we went fishing one day on the boat, we did some offshore fishing and this was last year right when all the financial stocks were crashing and uh, he had heavily invested in financial stocks and um, we were out on the boat fishing, we're supposed to be enjoying ourselves, but he keeps getting these uh, text messages because he had a lot of stock in Wachovia. And, uh, you know, Wachovia doesn't exist anymore. Um, it's Wells Fargo now. But uh, he had a lot of stock in, in, in Wachovia. And we're out on the boat, and his brother-in-law, who sold all his Wachovia stock four weeks ago, kept texting him. It was the day, it was, that was the day that Wachovia fell apart, basically. He texted him, Wachovia's down 20%. And we're fishing, having a good time. Beep, beep, beep. He's like, oh, shoot. Fish a little bit more. Beep, beep, beep. Down another 30% fish a little more. Beep, beep, beep. So we're supposed to be having fun. He's out there getting his text messages that is falling apart and he's losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking I would be in like the fetal position sucking my thumb in the corner of the boat. Um, and I was very thankful not to have a lot of money then. I was very thankful I didn't have anything in the stock market. We got home, he rushed to his computer, tried to sell it all, but it was too late because it was worth like, you know, 42 cents at that point. Um, luckily, uh, Wells Fargo bought it and he did make some money, but Anyway, um, you see what I'm saying. there there is more anxiety also comes. That's what verse 12 says. Verse 12 says, "Sweet is the sleep of, of a laborer, but the stomach of the rich won't the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. It's not saying we think they're saying yeah, that's right. rich people are immoral, that's why they can't sleep. That's not what it says at all. It's saying rich people have a harder time sleeping because there's more anxiety, there's more skin in the game. you got more to lose out there, more to manage." so it does it we think money will bring us freedom but it actually brings us stress and anxiety what our little article say about this Um, if we go to the the very next paragraph by the way starts with this sentence more money can lead to more stress I mean it he just follows right through follows right through the uh, Ecclesiastes outline here okay um, so if we look to money for happiness we see this freedom money is a terrible master in our lives Uh, third thing we use it for rec- recognition. We use it for recognition. Money is how you prove yourself. I, ha- I had a good friend in high school, and she had a teacher tell her, uh, Dr. King was our lit teacher in high school in 12th grade, and and Dr. King told her, you you will never be anything. You'll never make anything out of yourself. And uh, I mean, that's a terrible thing to say, don't get me wrong, but we got, I I, I met, I, I saw my friend again like six years later, you know, after we graduated college and everything, and uh, she was very successful. She had a great job. She had a great husband, a great family. Um, she she her husband had a great job. They were doing so good. And you know what she said? I was just like, "Congratulations!" On you know? She said, "You know what? I wish Dr. King could see me now. I want to show her. I want to prove to her I did make something of myself." She's Living for years based on a comment that a high school English teacher told her. To she she's still wanting to prove herself. A story closer to home. Um, uh, the August Bush the Fourth. Um, you know, we all this. We just passed the year of uh, one-year anniversary of the sale of Anheuser Busch to to Inbev, and and one of the reasons that Augie Bush the Fourth held out from selling Budweiser or AB was not simply because he wanted to get a better deal or because he wanted to maintain the most control. He actually said this. I'm not making this up. This is an interview in the Wall Street Journal. He talks about he was talking about his dad. One of the reasons, uh, one of his driving forces in life. He says, his, talking about his dad, his love and respect will be mine when I'm successful. His love and respect will be mine when I'm successful. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes 4.4. If you look over, I mentioned it last week, he says, I saw that all the toil and skill and work come from a man's, what, envy of his neighbor. We think, we think money means recognition. Money means I get to impress people. Money means that I'm going to finally be noticed. I'm going to finally prove myself. And when we don't have it, we do have it, we gloat over it and we worry about it. And when we don't have it, we don't have it, we become jealous and envious. And it's hard. I will, quite honestly, I will say that, you know, if you don't get the recognition from, that you need, you become resentful, you become bitter. And, uh, and I can say that years ago, I resented wealthy people. I resented rich people. I, I worked my way through seminary for part of the time through grad school uh, at as a janitor at a very wealthy and large church. And, uh, and I used to get so bitter because I would be working there. You know, I would drive up in my 92 Sentra, uh, barely running, having just had some, you know, frosted flakes for my one meal of the day and And, you know, I go to work there as the janitor slash maintenance guy, and I see these rich people driving in with their cars and their nice suits and, you know, leaving messes for me to clean up everywhere. And I was just complaining about them and on and on and on. And one day my friend said this. He said, Jeremy, you're here training to be a pastor. You're training to be a pastor. If this job doesn't teach you anything else, I hope it teaches you to be a servant of people. And when he said that, I realized something. See, I thought that I despised them because they love money. It wasn't true. I resented them because I loved money. I I resented them because I was the one that had the money sickness, the greed in my heart. I didn't even know those people. I have no idea who they were or what they did. I resented them because of me. And so that's. That's another reason money makes a, a terrible master because we seek it for recognition. Uh, the last thing is that we want it for, the last sign is we, we want it for security and comfort. Um, money tells us if we we think if we get enough money that we just wrap the future up for ourselves in a bow, right? It just gives us security. We know we get we're good for retirement, good for the kids' education. We've got all that thing, all that just wrapped up in a bow. And I, you know, the last year of economic news has probably unraveled that package for uh the majority of us, if not all of us. And when you see it, when you see money as security and comfort, you simply begin to store it up. You begin to live in fear, you begin to try to hoard it, and you always fear what might happen to it, what calamity might take it. That's what he that's what he says in, in verses thirteen and fourteen. He says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. In other words, it was hoarded, right? It was hoarded to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. A bad investment, the stock market turned down, the, a thief stole it. What, something happened. It says, and he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He thought money would be security and comfort. He thought it would be security and comfort. But in the end, it came up short. In the end, all of our other gods that we put in God's place are going to come up short. And the more we become obsessed with money, the less security and comfort we actually feel. And then he says there's actually an ultimate reason why it doesn't bring security, and that's because what comes in verse 15? It says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. In other words, death breaks up the security dream altogether. At some point, you have to face death. And as one person said, there's no U-Hauls behind the hearse. There's no no U-Haul moving trucks uh, at the funeral because it simply cannot be taken with you. Um, He says something there in verse 13 that struck me. He said, this is a grievous evil. Why would he say that? I mean, why not just say, this is kind of tough or it's hard to deal with? It's a grievous evil, he says. And I would say this, because the little story he tells, the man hoarded his wealth and then he lost it all and it was of no use. It didn't benefit anybody. And what he's saying is that it's a grievous evil because it represents the wasted life. It represents the wasted life. I think about that, and it's just one of my biggest fears in my life, my biggest fears for any of us that we would waste our lives, that we would we would dream only our our biggest dream would be the American dream that we could just finally make it and retire at 50 and uh do whatever. God says there's something greater, there's something better, there's a bigger dream to be dreamed, and money will make a terrible master. It'll make a great servant. How can, it, how can money make a great servant? Um, we can look at verses 16 to 17. You, just, you kind of get the picture there. I don't think I need to belabor it, but 16 to 17 basically says you know, the love of money will leave you with sickness and anger and hurt and disappointment. Chasing money will not make it in your life. And so how do we if money is a terrible master, how do we make it a terrible servant? Um, and the bottom line is that God does not. God does not want you to. God does not want to make you feel guilty about your money. He wants you to be able to really enjoy it. The problem is, if it's your master, you never enjoy it. That's that's why he says he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. If you love it, you will never enjoy it. And so, this is this is what he says in verses eighteen to twenty. He says, "Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment." and all the toil which one toils under the sun for this is his lot everyone to whom god has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy him enjoy them to accept his lot and rejoice in his in his toil what he's saying here is god is sovereign over all these all these issues do we have the ability to be content with that. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about content with not having a job, not being able to feed your family. I'm talking about do we have once we have our basic needs met, do we have the ability to be content? Because what he's saying is that the pursuit of what we do not have will destroy all the great things that we actually do have. The pursuit of what we don't have will actually end up destroying any enjoyment we could have from there. And the basic idea is that Jesus doesn't want you guilty. He wants you free. He wants you to be free from the fear of losing money, free from the need of it for security and comfort, free from its enslaving power to consume us. He wants you to be able to use it to enjoy life, enjoy what you've been given, rest in the lot, in the, in the, in the, in the place that God has given you. Uh, number two, he's talking, about, he's talking about impact. I just talked about dreaming a bigger dream. And, um, you know, the only way to enjoy money is to use it. Otherwise, what is it? It's just a number in, in an account somewhere or, or bills under a mattress or something. I mean, if you look at your savings account, and let's say last year it had $18,000 in it, and this year it has $26,000 in it, probably reverse for most of us. Um, but if it has more, well, okay, I get a little enjoyment. I've increased my savings. But it's just, my, it's just a number in an account unless you use it, unless it has some impact, unless it does something in the world. In Psalm, in Psalm 71, 18, the psalmist dreams a bigger dream something bigger than the American dream. He says, Lord, even down to old age and gray hairs, don't forsake me until, until what? Until I proclaim your might to another generation. In other words, he's looking down the tunnel of history and saying, I don't want to live old. I don't want to grow old so I can, you know, be financially secure and be on and collect seashells and play all the golf I want and watch all the TV I want, and never do anything. I want to be secure so I can proclaim another, to another generation. And so I just ask, you know, all of us, what dream are we dreaming? I mean. I would love to see people working hard, retiring at age 50 and becoming a second career missionary in Iran or Burma or Iraq or New Orleans or downtown St. Louis or whatever. Work hard and retire at 50 and and start open orphanages and schools in Africa or adopt children um, here in our country or um, whatever. I don't know. What dream are we dreaming? Are we thinking bigger than just the American dream? Are we thinking bigger than just something so simple? What What if we dream something bigger, something that actually had an impact on the world, something that actually alleviated the misery of the world. Money is nothing if it's not used. And if all that sounds kind of too big and too religious and too over the top, just start with something small. Start with ten bucks today, and just say, "How can I use ten bucks to have an impact for some somebody else?" Think outside yourself just a little bit. How can I just use five dollars, ten dollars? If you're a kid, how can I use fifty cents? I don't know what it is, but start with something small. Ask God to give you joy in using that impact, and then God will keep growing the dreams, bigger and bigger. I want us to be a church that dreams of dreams, something big, that does something huge, that sees impact from money. We use our money. We enjoy our money by using it. So how do you get that? How do you do that? How do you stop money from being your master and make it your servant? Because it's so insidious, it's so deceptive, it just lives inside of us. Most people say what you need is radical guilt. What you need is to feel very guilty about all the people that could use your money that don't have it. The Bible says what you need is radical grace. The Bible says what you need is a message and a belief and a trust in radical grace. If you look at um, Isaiah 55, he says this almost exactly. He says in in Isaiah 55, 2, he says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? In other words, see, you're, you're laboring and spending for what doesn't satisfy. What does he say? Come, everyone who thirsts, everyone who's chasing, everyone who's seeking, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. See what every other religion says? Come and pay your way into God. Every other religion says, come, pay your, ba- pay your vows, pay your obedience pay your money. God needs your money. Christianity is not religion. God doesn't need your money. And in fact, God paid your way into him. God paid his way in to you. Instead of you paying your way to God, God has paid his way to you. And so how do you stop money from being your masters? You look to Jesus. Who was Jesus? He was the one that had it all. He's The Nelson Rockefeller of heaven, he had more money, more wealth, more riches than anyone else can ever imagine. More than your wildest dreams, more than Solomon's wildest dreams, more than Bill Gates' wildest dreams. What did Jesus do? He gave up his wealth. He gave up his riches. He gave up his honor to be born in a stable. To be born in a barn, basically. To have no money, to have no retirement account, to have no security on earth, to have no comfort. come to give his life, to die. Had no, no home to live in he who was wealthy became poor so that we who are spiritually poor could become rich. Rich beyond our wildest dreams. And if you knew that, if I knew that, if I really believed that, if I really believed that God had already given me the kingdom, I mean, Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, it is God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. If I really knew I had the kingdom, if I really knew I had God himself, I really knew that I had the the security and eternal comfort of Jesus. That I had eternity was mine. That I had everything. I wouldn't be so stressed and anxious about money. I wouldn't be needing it for my happiness because I would have it in God. I wouldn't need it for my security and my comfort because I have eternity. I wouldn't need it for recognition because he has said, "I'm, you're my child. I delight in you. I love you. So, Non-Christian. If you're not a Christian, I mean, Would you consider giving up your chase for everything else? Consider the one who gave up his wealth and became poor so that you who are poor could become rich. And we who are Christians say, "I, I believe Jesus, I believe that, but I still feel that money centricity in my life. It's because we're not gazing at him, because we don't know him well enough, because we haven't taken it down deep into the roots of who we are. How can we break the cycle? How can we dream a bigger dream? How can we go for broke? How can we risk everything? How can we not be just simply 21st century American Christians? We look to the one who was wealthy and became poor so that we were poor become rich. When we know that, when we believe that, there's no risk we can't take. There's no dream we can't dream. There's nothing better that we could ever do. There's nothing else we would want to chase. we've already been made rich by Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I feel in my own heart the chase and anxiety and the fear about money. Lord, I confess that I am a weak and fearful person when it comes to my financial security, my financial well-being, paying my bills this month and next month and saving for this and that and providing for a family. Lord, I don't want to trust you. I don't want to accept my lot in life. I don't want to think about the impact I can have in the world because I'm thinking too much about my own needs. I don't want to think about the impact because I'm too busy resenting people that have more. Jesus, would you transform our hearts? Show us that we already have the kingdom. We already have you. We already have eternal security and comfort. So may we risk, and go forward strongly after you, strongly after your kingdom. Empower us now in Jesus' name, amen.